Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Mind the Shift. I am Anders Bolling. We have talked about Africa a little bit on the podcast, but uh, arguably not, not enough. Uh, with Africa, I primarily refer to Sub-Saharan Africa because uh, there are good reasons to uh, relate North Africa to the Middle East and to, to the Arab world. Africa is crucial not only to the people who live on this primordial homo sapiens continent, but what happens in Africa will affect all of us in the whole world, uh, whether it's going to be a success story or a disaster. And also this particular period in history uh, is also arguably a um, a sensitive moment in the evolve, evolution of democracy. And sub-Saharan Africa is probably pivotal in, in that regard, the continent being a newcomer as it is in the realm of free and sometimes fair elections. My guest today is Nick Cheeseman. He's a professor of democracy at the university in Birmingham, United Kingdom, not Birmingham, Alabama. He was formerly the director of the African Studies Center at Oxford University. He's the author of or editor of 10 books, including How to Rig an Election from 2018, which he wrote together with Brian Kloss. And Nick is also the former editor of African Affairs and the founder of the monitoring, analyzing, and communicating website, Democracy in Africa. Welcome to the show, Nick. My pleasure. Lovely to be here. Okay, so I read your book, uh, How to Rig a, an Election, with, with great interest, and it's packed with, with examples from all over the world, uh, many from Africa, of course, which is, which is your domain. And some of these stories of, of rigging are really mind-boggling. I mean, there, there is this example of the, the president of Madagascar who's, who uh, effectively uh, hindered his, his opponent from landing in, in the country so that he couldn't participate in, in the election and thereby not being able to, to, to compete. Uh, that's an extreme example, but there are, uh, as I understand from the book, six main ways of doing it. Can you just briefly walk us through through these six ways of rigging? Well, what we talk, yeah, what we talk about in the book is that, um, in many ways, the kind of rigging strategies that we're seeing around the world are getting more sophisticated. And so, you know, what you might have seen maybe twenty years ago, you know, in the world in terms of maybe trying to rig an election through high levels of political violence, repressing the opposition, simply not allowing opposition supporters to vote. You know, that kind of strategy is less favored now, uh, partly because it's high profile, it gets, you know, it's embarrassing, it raises attention of international actors. Um, and so what we sort of suggest is that we've seen over the last 20 years, you know, authoritarian leaders kind of swapping into strategies that are more subtle. Now, actually, one of the really interesting questions is whether or not we've come out of that process and authoritarian leaders are becoming more blatant again. If you think about what's happening in Russia with Putin, if you think about what's happening right now in Israel, if you think about what's happened in the elections in Uganda and Tanzania in Africa, where it kind of seemed like authoritarian leaders stopped caring about the impression that they would create internationally, stopped caring about trying to create elections that looked good, even though they were manipulated. Perhaps we're pulling out of that and actually authoritarian leaders are are entering a period where they once again don't really care about what the international community thinks and maybe that says something about the nature of the international community right now 
But when we wrote the book, we identified, as you say, a number of key strategies. Uh, so one was attempting to buy hearts and minds, you know, attempting to use money and buying people out, co-opting co-opting them. Uh, another yeah. was classic kind of invisible strategies. So, you know, fixing the voters register so your opponent's supporters aren't even on it. The classic gerrymandering, you know, the politicians actually drawing the electoral boundaries. So, and the famous quote, the politicians choose the voters rather than the voters choosing the politicians. Uh, the use of violence and repression, but, but ways of doing that at a much more subtle now. For example, um, you know, the strategy that we often refer to as kind of shaking the matchbox. You don't actually go in and beat people up physically because that creates scars, that creates uh, bloody wounds that can be shown on CNN. What you do is you intimidate people, you threaten to beat them up, you go back to places where you did violence in the past and remind them of what happened when they didn't vote for the president before and intimidate them in that way. Uh, we also talk about you know digital processes. The book was published just around the Cambridge Analytica scandal. So yeah. we talk about you know attempts by Russian hacking, but also you know kind of troll factories producing fake news around the world and attempts to sort of hack into elections, which are themselves becoming increasingly digital in the way that they're being run. And of course, that again can be a process that's very hard to detect. For example, you know most international election observation groups don't have social media experts who are tracking social media in multiple languages as part of their team. And so big parts of social media are simply not being observed around elections by our formal election observation mechanisms. Um, so the, these were the kinds of different strategies that we were talking about. And what we kind of argued in the book is that, you know, leaders select between them, depending on how desperate they are, how, how badly they need to win, how much it looks like they might lose and how much they care about losing looking good in the eyes of their own public and in the eyes of the international community. So if you really need the international community, you don't have many resources, you're feeling vulnerable, uh, perhaps you, you eschew uh, the kind of violence, you don't use the high level violence as really you know, explicit, you try and do all of the other strategies because for you, having international aid cut off or having the United States condemn your government might be a much you know, a big deal. Whereas if you're in Belarus or Russia, Perhaps you don't worry so much about what the United States thinks because you've got gas, you've got oil, you've got resources, uh, you don't need their financial resources, and perhaps you've got an alternative authoritarian network supporting your government. That means you don't need the support of sort of democratic institutions. So mm -hmm. our idea was not that these six sort of factors or ways of rigging are set in stone, but that leaders kind of creatively choose between them, depending mm -hmm. on the situation that they face. When we're talking about Africa, I suspect that these the, the latter one, the, the sixth one here, the, the uh, more technical, electronical way of, of uh, rigging things is, is more something of that is used in, in richer countries in, in, in Europe and, and America rather than in Africa and poor countries of Asia. Or is that not correct? Uh, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's very much on the rise. I mean, of course, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that many African elections are more advanced than European elections. So okay. let me compare, say, Kenya and the UK. I mean, if you think about elections in the UK, almost everything in UK elections is done manually. A lot mm -hmm. of it is done on trust. You don't have to show very much identification to go to the polling station. Uh, you vote with a piece of paper and an old fashioned paper ballot. You put your tick in the box and you put it in. Um, and probably in a UK election, unless you've been sort of required information, etc., online at some point, you can do the entire process entirely manually. That's mm. not possible in a country like Kenya right now. In Kenya, in the last election, not only were voters verified 
identified, uh, registered biometrically, so using biometric data, using digital technology. Uh, but when voters got to polling stations, they were supposed to be verified biometrically. So again, taking a fingerprint or in some places an eye scan, etc. Um, and not only that, that there's a couple of countries in Africa, the DRC recently, where voting was supposed to be done electronically. Um, and then yeah. going back to the Kenya example, actually the results transmission process was supposed to be done electronically. All of these parts of the process, though, often become clouded in controversy themselves. So the idea is that introducing technology takes human beings out of the picture, takes out human agency, the system works, the technology delivers a clear result, everybody goes unhappy. In reality, of course, as we know, you initially get rumors about hacking by one side or the other. You then find out that some parts of the technology don't work in some parts of the system on some parts of the day. The opposition will then say that's because it was deliberately brought down or sabotaged by the ruling party to allow rigging. You know, most of the system will work, but not all of the system will work. And of course, what you end up with is exactly the same set of rumors and suspicions about the digital process that you would have had about the manual process, just mm. refracted through a different lens. Um, and so actually, you know, increasingly, it's really important to understand what's going on in these processes. We wrote a paper a couple of years ago for the journal Democratization, and we found that almost 50% of African elections now involve some form of digitized technology as part of the core oh, really? process used by the Electoral Commission. So it, it is increasingly important. And, you know, if we were to look at social media, again, I think we would find the same thing. It's true that we see lower percentages of people, you know, with internet access and smartphones in a lot of African countries than, say, you know, certain European countries. Uh, but it's also true that that's changing very, very quickly. And in mm. countries where mobile phone penetrations is pretty high, social media and stories on social media, campaigning, fake news on WhatsApp is as big an issue, you know, in Africa, in somewhere like Nigeria, for example, uh, where one of the biggest stories at the last election was, of course, that President Buhari had actually died abroad, yes, been replaced so by a cop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, actually <laughs> the elites around him were managing the campaign. You know, that was as big a story in, in Nigeria as the Trump and Hillary Clinton stories were in America. Of course. So yeah. I think, and I think that, again, that process of, you know, digitization, the, the governments and electoral commissions have begun that process of digitization. Politicians are using it. So President Bahari set up his own digital, basically, campaign, um, trying to mobilize through things like WhatsApp. But election observers and civil society groups often don't have the funds to play catch up. So they're mm. one step behind. So as the elections are developing, ironically, with funding often from Western governments seeking to promote democracy, in some ways, those mechanisms which are supposed to keep elections safer are actually making it harder for civil society groups and observers to actually observe the process. Um, and of course, in many cases, it's really difficult to know whether a system was hacked or not, whether or not the actual process was completely valid. Because even if you get really high quality technical experts, it cannot be very easy to tell what's actually going on, for example, in the service of the Electoral Commission. And even if you get really good experts on social media, because there's so many different messages being used in idioms and metaphors in, in different languages, it can be very hard to see what the actual content of those messages and to analyze them in an effective way. So for me, one of our biggest challenges is actually dealing with and responding to the way social media and digital elections are transforming elections, not just in Africa, but certainly in Africa also. Yeah. It's interesting what you say about Britain and, and also my country, Sweden. I, I, I know, remember now that before our last election in Sweden, there was a discussion about uh, the risk of fraud in Swedish uh, 
polling stations also because here the, the ballots have been have been displayed openly with from all the parties and also re representatives from the parties are standing outside the the polling stations and are handing out openly ballots from different parties and people are are I mean, they, they can feel pressured to, to, to pick one or the other, you know, from different parties. And that was actually an issue, I think, at, in the OSCE or something. They were criticizing Sweden for that. So, I mean, you, you think that it's all set and, and, and it's all, it's all um, behind us, the whole development of, of democracy and, and, and elections in, in the Western countries. But, but it's not true. I mean, you can, you can do it in so many ways. And it's, it's really, as you say, probably a lot about trust. And maybe that's, that's where the difference comes in between Europe and Africa. Yeah, I mean, I, I often start my lectures. I often start my lectures, um, you know, wherever I am in the world, by asking people, you know, what's the what's a country in the world where every single one of the main parties has been fined by the Electoral Commission for breaching campaign finance laws in the last three years? And the answer is the UK. Right, okay. uh, almost every one of the main political parties in the UK, maybe not the SNP, certainly the Liberal Democrats, Labour Party, Conservative Party, you know, have all been in trouble with the um, Electoral Commission for spending more money than they're supposed to. And, you know, we actually talked to the head of the UK Electoral Commission about this. He's actually gone on record about this in the media. And he says, you know, quite straightforwardly that, the, you know, the cost of the fine for breaking the rules is so low that the parties just basically accommodate that within their budget and break the rules knowing they can afford to pay the fine. You know, the okay. fine, you know, the fine is a small financial fine. So, of course, that's nothing compared to the value of winning an election. And, of course, a small financial fine doesn't matter that much. What would really hurt them would be something that would be a cost to their chances of winning the elections. But that's not how the system works. Okay. So the UK system is kind of based on the idea that everybody follows the rules, except people don't follow the rules. And we actually have problems in our democracy that we don't really want to talk about. Um, and of course, the Electoral Commission in the UK faces exactly the same problem as the Electoral Commission in other countries, in African countries, which is that political parties will not vote for tougher campaign finance measures that they would then be punished under. And, yeah. you, you know, and you see that from the opposition as well as the ruling party in the UK. So his ability to actually generate stronger fines that would actually make it a genuine disincentive is weakened by the political incentives. So whenever I give lectures on this or talks, I always try and sort of bring out to people that, you know, these problems, electoral manipulation, etc., aren't African issues or Asian issues or even Russian issues. They are global issues. And I think nothing demonstrates that point better right now than the United States, where we have a genuine concerted attempt at voter suppression, um, which may be coming in the UK because Boris Johnson has started to say very similar things about voter registration and identification um, that, you know, that we're seeing from Republican states in the US. And this is a very difficult one, I think, for Democrats to fight on, because if, like me, you spend a lot of your time wanting to strengthen elections, then people will come and say, well, how can you possibly not want people to need more identification in order to be able to vote? Surely that's safeguarding the election. Of course, we both know that what asking for that many pieces of identification usually means is that key constituencies, often minorities, new immigrants, homeless mm. people, people who've yeah. recently been to prison are effectively disenfranchised because they are less likely to have those pieces of information. Or exactly what's happening in the United uh, we, States. 
And we know exactly the motivation behind this, which is not to safeguard the election, because if you look at the reports on the election, there's very limited evidence of any kind of fake voting or illegal voting. It's about disenfranchising voters. But it's hard to fight that case because the other side can say, well, you're always telling us we need to safeguard the process. This safeguards the process. And that then, I think, clouds the issue. It's hard to frame you in a way that's, that's as easy as it is um, for something, you know, some of the other issues that we talk about. But again, I think it's really important to put this on the table because that is as big an issue to the democratic future of the US as you know the kind of electoral problems we would talk about in Zimbabwe and Kenya and I think a lot of our you know African colleagues are rightly getting frustrated as at the world kind of seeing you know African democracy and African elections as a sort of unique problem you know ignoring the fact that very similar practices are being done in the United States um, and what I would really like to see you know if, if President Biden really wants, as he says sometimes, to kickstart global democracy is, you know, for a genuine conversation which learns from all cases and sort of takes all cases as being equal, rather than sort of the idea that America's got it right and can export democracy. I think the idea needs to be America has numerous democratic problems and it needs to have a conversation about how to solve its own problems as well as everybody else's. Mm -hmm. And if we had that conversation in genuine partnership and we started talking about the democratic limitations of our own system, you know, the UK's House of Lords, the historic problems, you know, with racism and other issues in numerous democracies and voter suppression, the problem that many European states have with low numbers of women in parliament, which is something that some African countries have, have you know, been able to deal with. Then I think we could have a genuine conversation and learn from each other rather than the kind of idea that Western states can lecture others on democracy, which I think is something that we need to consign to the past. Yeah, that might be a bit arrogant, arrogant actually. But and also this, what you just said, lays the the ground for, or, or maybe implicitly answers my next next question here. But still, I'm going to 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 ask it because uh, you know, uh, when we hear about all these these kinds of rigging situations and 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 like fraudulent elections in in Africa and other poor countries, poorer countries than than Europe, we many people would say, and you have also written this yourself. They say um, when they hear this, but, but hey, what could you expect? You know, poor countries, new democracies. What could you expect? So, why? And you actually really already did answer this a little bit, but still, why should we measure these young democracies with the same gauges as mature Western democracies? I mean, my my answer to this is twofold. You know, one. I think we should apply similar standards to all countries because I think it would be patronizing not to. You know, it would be patronizing to assume that an African country can't achieve the same levels of democracy. And indeed, there are countries in Africa like Ghana, which have achieved much higher levels of democracy than some European states, many Asian states and so on. Um, you know, high levels of political participation, regular rotation of parties through power. There are issues in Ghana, you know, clientelism, patronage still plays an important role in politics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Ghana has a right to be seen as a high quality democracy. And if we kind of somehow used a system of evaluation for African countries that sort of stopped halfway, we'd have no way of accounting for a country like Ghana that's done pretty well. Um, countries like Namibia, South Africa, Botswana, uh, Mauritius, until relatively recently, there's some questions being asked now, but all of these countries have a record of respecting human rights and having high levels of free speech and, and, and 
political competition. So there's a number of countries there that deserve the right to be seen as on the higher end of the democratic spectrum. Um, and we therefore need to use the whole democratic spectrum in Africa. Now, that doesn't mean that we should expect every single country to be at the top of that spectrum from the very word go, right? We know that it takes time to embed democratic norms and values. We know that it takes time to establish democratic institutions and there will be battles along the way. So, you know, I think it doesn't mean that you expect a country to be a, you know, a grade A democracy from the word go. But I think it's important that we establish that that's what the standard should be, because as far from anything, if we look at survey data and anyone who's listening who's interested can go to the Afrobarometer, www.afrobarometer.org and see survey data for something like 37 countries in Africa now, you can see that it's what citizens want. You know, most African citizens in most countries want to live in democracies with multi-party elections and presidential term limits and, you know, where elections and accountability are respected. And so I think, you know, for because it's what people want and because we see countries that are democratic, we should have the same standards. It may be that we see different pathways to achieving those standards. You know, that's something that, that I think we need to, you know, consider. Um, but we need to have the same standards. Now, I think the other thing that's important to say is that there is a risk here that, you know, if you start to say that we don't have the same standards, that you then start excusing authoritarian behavior. You know, you start basically excusing governments who actually could become democratic, but decide not to, partly because it's so easy because of the curse of low expectations. You know, all of the international community aren't going to criticize you because, well, you're an African country. You know, you start to create that impression within the African Union, within your own population. You depress expectations and then you, you know, you deliver poorly where democracy is concerned. And I think, you know, actually a number of countries in Africa have shown us, even, you know, multi-ethnic countries that Ghana, that have a history of military rule, um, that have shown us that it's possible to build something out of that context that's, you know, very impressive. Even Liberia and Sierra Leone, two countries that have experienced you know, high levels of civil war, have now managed these peaceful transfers of power. And, you know, while I don't think anyone would call them consolidated democracies, they have become, you know, relatively open political systems in which there's genuine opportunity for the opposition to win power. Um, now, that's not democracy, but it's the st in a very important step on the way to democracy. So I think it's important to recognize African success stories, which often get, you know, left unheard. How often is the success of Sierra Leone or Liberia in the world media? Very, very rarely. Not um, and use those examples to to hold other governments accountable, right? You know, say, look, you know, you're you're telling us in whichever country we might be talking about, Zimbabwe, Zambia, you know, democracy isn't for you, Tanzania under Magafuli, say. Um, but there's lots of other African countries that are managing to do something, you know, positive economically with a much more open political system than you. And if they can do it, why are you telling us that the only way to manage your country is through some form of authoritarian rule? So mm. I think it's important to keep those democratic standards to challenge, you know, to challenge that view. And as I say, because I think people on the ground want that. I do think, though, that the best way for that to happen is, is not for, you know, Western governments to come in and say, we think we've got some abstract standard and we're going to evaluate you against it. It's to get that conversation going between those countries in Africa, you know, between civil society groups in Africa, between activists in Africa, opposition leaders in Africa, mm. so that it's the, it's the president of Sierra Leone or Liberia or MPs from those countries who perhaps can go to Uganda and say, we don't, you know, we don't do this in our country. 
why do you need to do it in yours? I mean, I heard once of a fascinating conversation between some Ghanaian MPs and some Ugandan MPs. The Ghanaian MPs were visiting shortly after there'd been an incident in Uganda where a bunch of opposition protesters had been attacked and the opposition leader had been arrested. And Ugandan MPs were saying, well, of course, you know, this is to be expected. And the Ghanaian MP said, why? Yes, you know, why? why? Not, Very it's not happened question. in our country in the last 10 years. But that message is much more powerfully delivered by Ghanaian MPs than Western political leaders, right? I think exactly. that's the point. And so fostering those conversations and starting those conversations is good. But we can only get there if we respect and realize that actually there's been some impressive democratic processes mm. in some African states. You know, not, not to say that there isn't a very long way to go for many countries, but it's important not to assimilate it. And, and this is one of the things that I, I say most, I think, when I give talks, which is, you know, there is not one Africa. And not only is there not one Africa, there's probably not even three or four Africas when it comes to democratic progress. You know, we have a very small number of quite highly performing democratic states at the top. We have a set of authoritarian states that have basically not moved very much from their level of you know, repression in the early 1990s. We've got a bunch of countries that kind of cycle a little bit. You know, we get very excited about positive trends in somewhere like Kenya, and then occasionally there's a setback. Um, we've got other countries that seem to be making very slow levels of progress. Um, you know, there's, there's multiple different trajectories where democracy is concerned on the continent. And if anything, I think, you know, because some of those democratic countries are slightly consolidating over time, while those authoritarian recalcitrant countries are not moving, I think the gap between the least democratic and most democratic country in Africa is actually going to get wider over the next five years. So it's going to be even, you know, almost every year, we're going to see more diversity when it comes to democracy in Africa. So what's going to happen in the middle, so in the middle one, section of, 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 those, of that... Uh... The middle group is that well. This is a, growing or this is, is a great question. This is a great question, and I think one of the things we've seen in recent years. I mean, this this is my hypothesis, but it, but I, I you know it, it, you there are multiple different ways to interpret this. I think that one of the things we've seen in countries like Zimbabwe, Kenya, Uganda, etc., uh, is we see opposition parties doing a little bit better in a couple of elections, building support. Often the ruling party will fail to deliver economically. The opposition will start to pick up some of the disgruntled groups that feel let down. Maybe some of the leaders who've been kicked out of cabinet start to build a broader alliance. And you'll get to a point where it looks like the opposition might win. Mm. And that's the moment that perhaps if it happens, gets celebrated as the big democratic breakthrough. So think about Malawi, 2019, President Mutharika officially won the election, but there were street protests. It went to the courts, first the constitutional court, then the Supreme Court ruled that illegal. In the rerun election in 2020, the opposition candidate won. There was actually a peaceful transfer of power. That's now seen as a really important milestone in Malawian democracy, not just the second country in Africa after Kenya in 2017 to see a presidential election nullified by the courts, but a country in which that was then followed up by an opposition victory. Mm. That becomes a democratic milestone that you can then sort of have as one of the, you know, a, a component of the sort of democratic myth that can then build kind of Malawian democracy. People can think back to that great victory. If you then think about what happens, say, in country like Uganda or Zimbabwe, that moment is denied. The authoritarian regime is too repressive. It perhaps has too strong links to the security forces. There are too many veto players who refuse to accept the possibility of losing power. And so instead of that transition, what you see is clampdown. See it in Zimbabwe, 2008. See it in Uganda around Bobby Wine. Uh, in Kenya around 2007, you know, the election that we, you know, many people believe the opposition won, Raila Odinga won. Uh, you see it now, I think, in Zambia, where probably 
uh, you know, I think most people would think in a free and fair election, the government may well lose because it's had a very difficult economic time and there's been rising support for the opposition leader. But many people think that the opposition won't be allowed to win and that actually the government will clamp down around the elections. So these countries in the middle... In August, yeah, Zambian yeah. general elections are in August. Um, and so one of the things I think we see is this kind of cycling where the opposition does better, grows, uses the kind of space that's available in you know, what are often described as kind of competitive authoritarian regimes. So they have elements of democracy combined with elements of authoritarianism. And opposition parties are able to use that to grow and expand and get a foothold. But then in some of those countries, when they look like they're about to win, they're smashed all of a sudden there's repression, you go back to the beginning of the cycle. In some of those countries, there's that democratic breakthrough and that creates the opportunity to move up the democratic spectrum, you know, to a sort of higher level. Um, so Malawi kind of, as it were, graduated, it may, you know, it, it had that peaceful transfer and all of a sudden there's a new possibility, which is that this government will abide by its democratic promises, will agree to lose power if it loses an election in the future. And you start to build that norm that whoever loses will step aside peacefully. Um, but in Zimbabwe, Uganda, Kenya, you don't have that. And so elections become increasingly conflictual. The opposition increasingly believes it's gonna be rigged out even before the elections begun. Um, and so you kind of set the scene for further rounds of democratic crisis. And so for those countries, I don't think it's clear whether they're moving towards democracy, they're moving towards authoritarianism, or they're kind of stuck in a rut in between the two. And I think, you know, in those countries, it really depends on, you know, things like who's the individual leader, what is the shape of the economy, what do the security forces say about being deployed for political purposes to help out the ruling party. Um, and it, you almost need to kind of track that on a case by case basis to be able to understand what the sort of future trajectory of those countries is. So my suspicion would be that in if we were to have this conversation again in 10 years time, by that point, we would find that some of those countries had graduated, some of those countries would have had that peaceful transfer of power. It would have, the conditions would have congealed at one moment or another to allow that to happen. In some of them, it wouldn't have, and we would have seen further bouts of repression, and therefore they'd still be exactly where they are now in terms of sort of cycling between the two. And in some of those countries, it may be that, you know, the levels of repression get so high that actually allows for a more authoritarian form of government to be established in which the opposition is effectively wiped out. I mean, think about what happened in Tanzania where basically not only was the presidential candidate um, of the opposition effectively prevented from being able to contest the election meaningfully, but the government won a landslide in parliament, which basically means the opposition is locked out of parliament as well as the presidency. You know, those kinds of trends you know, which now seem to be being reversed in the Tanzanian case under the yeah Lee because he died so <laughs> uh, yeah but but those kinds of trends could you know see countries move down to become more authoritarian mm -hmm. so I think if we met in ten years' time we'd see different trajectories for the countries within that sort of cycling group and um, it might not always be completely predictable right not everybody was predicting that Malawi would have its democratic breakthrough and not mm -hmm. everybody predicted that you know the Kenyan election two thousand and seven would end up with you know, the opposition feeling rigged out and election violence that cost the lives of a thousand people. So yeah. some of these things, you know, will be unpredictable. And sometimes it will come down to, you know, what is the what is the leader willing to do to stay in power? Or how much what, blood what, are what they power willing has, to shed? Yeah. And, and how much how much uh, is the population willing to risk? Uh, I mean, talking about unexpected, we have this these hybrid examples like Ethiopia, 
And also lately, Sudan, as far as I understand, where the, the authoritarian regime kind of imploded and something different happened. And I mean, it's they are not still completely democratic, but there is some kind of interesting development happening there. Then we had this uh, unfortunate uh, civil war that broke up in Ethiopia, uh, but uh, but still very big and very important countries. So how, how many, I mean, what's, what's going to happen with that kind of hybrid uh, regimes? Because I mean, Ethiopia has had a very good track record when it comes to the economy and, and, and uh, people having gotten it better and all that, you know, uh, so, so they have a lot going for them and, and it would be very, very tragic if they squandered this opportunity now. I think, I mean, yeah, so, so I mean, in Sudan, of course, we saw, you know, mass protests um, by a variety of different groups, which really brought the government down and forced a transfer. Um, Ethiopia, we've seen something different. It's been the kind of, you know, the death of Meles, the need to select different leaders within uh, the ruling party. And then, of course, the, the rise to power of Abiy, Prime Minister Abiy, that's, that's generated the instability and um, well, we saw, first of all, we saw rising protests and, and, yeah. and rising yeah, levels of conflict were going understand. hand in hand with Meles' death and then that generating a situation where it becomes to power. Um, I think, you know, especially in the Sudanese case, but I think this is also true of a number of countries, I think a critical factor that we don't, you know, front load enough is how involved is the security forces and the military in civilian politics. Um, you know, one of the critical factors in the Malawian case was that the military was very keen not to become involved in politics. And that reflects the fact that the military is historically a couple of times, both in 1994, the founding elections, and then around the succession that led to Joyce Banda becoming Malawi's first female president. A couple of times before, the, the military has said, we are not going to do anything uh, that you know, represents an explicit political intervention against the constitution. We see ourselves as upguarding, upholding the constitution. And they did that again in 2019, 2020. They were actually celebrated uh, for you know, helping to protect protesters from the police. Uh, and in so doing, actually, you know, enabling Malawi's democratic culture to come alive. Whereas, of course, if the military had set up shop and started shooting protesters, those protests would have ended pretty quickly. So the position of the security forces, I think, is something we don't always talk about enough. And I think, you know, what gives me hope for the future of democracy in more civilian regimes where we don't have the security forces heavily involved is that I think it's easier to plot a pathway to peaceful transfers of power. So that would be Tanzania, that would be Zambia. You know, I would hold out more hope for those countries because I think mm. once civilian actors get their, get their house in order, there is no military to veto that transfer. What worries me most about Sudan, where we still see military very heavily involved, and Zimbabwe, where the military became increasingly involved, has always been involved, but increasingly involved through uh, the coup. Uh, that replaced Robert Mugabe um, and Uganda, where, of course, you know, the security forces has always been absolutely central under Museveni's control. What worries me about those cases is that you could see military actors or security force actors basically veto the transfer of power to civilian hands because they're worried about being prosecuted for past human rights abuses, because security force actors now actually have uh, their fingers uh, in numerous parts of the economy. And therefore, you know, a new party coming to power could have really serious economic implications for the military and the security forces who have started to sort of basically become dependent on predating on the economy. You know, in Zimbabwe, controlling diamond mines, 
in other countries, you know, having access to and control over key parts of the economic system in Zimbabwe. You know, we also see military uh, figures taking, you know, shares in key parastatals and business organizations. Once you start to have military figures and security force figures who not only have cabinet seats, but also control key parts of the economy, then they have a vested interest in stopping the opposition from ever winning. And of course, that then creates a veto to democratic change. Even if the political elite are willing to give up power, the military may say they're unwilling to allow that transition to take place. And so for me, I'm more optimistic about those countries where the military has been kept at barracks, has been kept sort of... Um, apolitical than the countries um, that where the military has become, you know, very heavily involved. And that means, you know, I think Sudan still, sadly, despite the inspirational protest, has a very long way to go, because I think there's still a very effective security force presence in that government that doesn't intend to see a genuine process of democratization. Um, and I think there's a number of countries, you know, where, where that's a, a central issue. And I don't think we talk about that enough. Yeah, and a very central, crucial, pivotal country in this context is Nigeria, of course, 200 million people. That country used to be ruled mm. by the military for, for, for a very long time, but then democracy was restored in 1999, I think it was, and it's been mm. a, a, a bit wobbly, but, but, but it's still there. So what do you think about Nigeria and, and the risk of uh, the military taking over again? Uh, well, of course... Um... President Buhari's critics would point out that, you know, would argue that the military is in power because, of course, he yeah. was a military dictator before becoming yeah. a Democrat uh, recently. And uh, many don't believe his conversion because his government hasn't followed through uh, with sort of promises of, you know, really revising uh, the political system and delivering the kind of democracy that Nigerians want. I mean, Nigeria is in a, in a terrible state right now. Um, there's very high levels of insecurity. There were multiple insurgencies and episodes and processes of insecurity in different parts of the country. You know, we've got a historic Niger Delta uh, insurgency around oil in the south. We have uh, clashes between farmers and herders. We've got clashes. Um, we've got the sort of revival of Igbo, uh, sort of, sorry, Biafran, I should say, separatism uh, in the east and the kind of revival of claims around you know, the kind of argument that parts of the, the country should secede from the center. And of course, we've got the Boko Haram insurgency in the north. I mean, you, you can go on and on and on. I mean, essentially, Nigeria has, you know, sadly, a, a number of overlapping insecurity crises simultaneously that have led people to seriously doubt whether or not the Nigerian state will survive. I recently wrote something that was a bit more optimistic. I was trying to point out some of the things that have gone well. Um, for example, you know, the fact that power rotates between North and South, that the political elite came up with an arrangement, um, often called zoning, that, that sees power rotate between um, different parts of the country and that that kind of shows, you know, a willingness to share power that, you know, is one of the important things in preventing things like civil war from taking place because everybody believes it's worth sticking with the system because at some point you'll get your share of the pie. Um, but a lot of Nigerians on social media were very upset with that piece because they felt that presenting those kind of more positive signs um, glossed over, you know, the great weaknesses of Nigeria. We hadn't intended to do that. We were just trying to, we saw so much negative press about Nigeria. We were trying to say something a bit more positive. But I think that- But it's always like that. I mean, it's, it doesn't matter if you write about Sweden or England or whatever. I mean, if you write something positive, you, you will get loads of criticism for not seeing the problems. So that happens all the time. Yeah. 
I think that's true. But I think also in this case, it, it, it's an important it's an important indicator of the depth of concern and feeling in Nigeria. Mm. Um, I think there are people who are very clearly desperate for their country, who feel that the level of insecurity is such that if it were to keep going, it would go out of control. And that while there may be a, a sort of very tiny glimmer of hope right now, if things continue this way for the next three months, it will go beyond that. And we will start talking about Nigeria you know, in the way that we talk about somewhere like the DRC. And our piece was kind of suggesting we're not there yet. Um, but I think their their argument was, we're very close to there and you have to be very worried about how close we are to being there. So I think in Nigeria right now, yeah, I mean, there's, there's multiple concerns. I mean, one concern would be the growth of separatism and, you know, genuine separatist movements in different parts of the country getting stronger. Another would be the simple failure of the security forces in the army to deal with, you know, terrorist groups, insurgency groups, bandits, and to basically establish security. Um, another would be, as you say, the potential damage of, you know, further political controversy, maybe a flawed election next time round that really angers groups, um, you know, and then, you know, the question of whether or not different factions of the military might seek to intervene to reestablish control. I think, you know, I think most people recognize that that kind of move would be deeply unhelpful and would probably lead to higher levels of political instability um, because the military wouldn't be able to keep the country together in the way that it perhaps attempted to do historically. Um, and that would probably be in many ways one of the worst things that could happen right now. Um, but I think that those kinds of options start to be thought about by people when the current democratic system is seen to be failing. And for people in Nigeria, it certainly seemed to be failing, you know, not just in, in terms of economic performance, not just in terms of people's question marks over, you know, Mr. President Buhari's re-election last time round, but what people see as a kind of failure of leadership, a failure of the political elite to grapple with how bad the situation is, the failure of Buhari to, for example, convene a national conference that brings people together and really creates a sort of set of understanding about how to deal with this, but also a failure to recognize that, you know, some of the problems with this are being driven by, you know, corruption and mismanagement. I mean, I published a piece on my website, democracyinafrica.org, recently, uh, which is basically about how, you know, there's a corrupt network that funnels money through what are called security votes. So votes, you know, that, that governors and other state at the state level in Nigeria um, can put into security funds. But the, the way that those are basically commissioned and the way that procurement happens within the funds that are allocated means that vast amounts of those funds are basically wasted because they're going to cousins of the governor or other figures who are politically allied to the governor who are providing substandard equipment, but taking top level money. And so although Nigeria spends more money on security every single year, that money isn't making it more effective at fighting terrorism. What it's actually doing is creating a black market where many, many people are getting very, very rich at the expense of you know, ordinary Nigerians with very little impact on the effectiveness and professionalism of the security forces. And fundamentally, President Buhari needs to be willing and able to deal with that because unless you deal with that mechanism and that, that problem, any amount of money you plow into the system isn't going to lead to a better outcome because it's going to be chewed up by that kind of corruption of mismanagement. Mm. And I think mm. that's what's worrying a lot of Nigerians. It's not yeah. just that the situation is very bad. It's that a lot of the obvious answers, send out more troops, put more money into the military, actually have been tried and have failed because of these structural weaknesses within the system that the president seems unable or unwilling to actually deal with. 
Yeah, corruption is rampant. It's it's terrible the situation as as you describe it, and it's really sad because Nigeria is is a huge country and it has a lot of proud people. I mean, there's the the differences between rich and poor are enormous, but there are some fairly wealthy people that are also very proud and also very uh, knowledgeable, especially in, in, well, in all parts of the country, as far as I understand. I've, I've, I've visited it uh, once at least and, and did some work there. And uh, you can find people who are very, they know a lot about Europe and they know a lot about culture and they have this Nollywood thing and they have a, a lot of, you know, vibrant culture, artists, writers, and all those things. So it's, it's, it's a fantastic country in, 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 money, in many mm. respects and it has so much potential. So it's really tragic and sad if it's going down the drain and it's, it's so, I mean, 200 million people, it, it's, it would be a disaster truly. So well, it would be a disaster regionally as well. You know, Nigeria's economy yes. is, is particularly important for the regional economy. If Nigeria slows down, you know, there's a good chance that most of the regional economies will suffer yeah, um, because it's such Africa. a big pull, such a big trader, um, but also for security, of course. And of course, we've recently seen, you know, insecurity in Chad and the death of the Chadian, Chadian president, um, you know, ostensibly because he was out you know supporting his troops who were fighting rebels so it's not just nigeria it's the kind of connection between nigeria and chad and the security nexus there and yeah i think i mean nigeria is a is a worrying problem mm. and I, you know one of the interesting questions i have i think it could be posed to the international community is you know there's a number of situations right now around the world ethiopia would be one nigeria would be one uh, myanmar would be one where really effective international leadership could prevent a crisis that potentially could have ramifications for the next 20, 30 years, you know, in terms yeah. of picking up the pieces if things fall apart. And we seem to lack that leadership internationally at the UN, in the UK, in Germany, in America. And this is not to say that those countries have all the answers, as we talked about earlier, they don't. But it seems to me that, you know, Brexit and the pandemic and Trump yeah. and yeah. have led to a much Keep, more- Keeping focus on elsewhere. Mm. Exactly. Yes. And the focus has gone from this and that without that international leadership to support domestic leadership, these problems have become harder to resolve. And I do wonder whether we'll look back and realize that there were a number of missed opportunities to make more productive partnerships to try and turn some of these situations around. Let's go back to, to, to the election system and the rigging and, and, and all this and, and the, the way that we, as you say, should uh, measure African elections with the same yardsticks as Western elections. But still, you do realize that some of these countries are really, really poor. I mean, these are countries that are poorer than, than, than most of the rest of the world. And it's hard to imagine. I mean, how can you, how is it even possible to stage elections in, in the poorest areas of the poorest countries under complete, with complete neutrality between the incumbent and the opposition? Uh, when it comes to resources, and, and how would people even know that there is an election going on? I mean, it, it, it seems to be fairly impossible to, to stage it in a way that it's, it's fairly easy to do in our countries where we have a lot of resources. And so this leads me to the, to the, to the actual question. I know you've addressed this. It's an important question, and you've addressed this. It's the order of events in societal development. Uh, and it has been different in, 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 in Africa than, than it was in Europe, for instance, when it comes to, to different parts of society. There are countries, uh, I mean, you could, you could argue that electoral democracy is perhaps premature in some of the, these countries. We've already 
touched upon this, but I still I still want to want to formulate that question uh, uh, again because um, I mean the development towards more free and fair governance and and societies in in general maybe could happen by way of other sectors coming first, like you know free enterprise, ownership laws, the judicial system, the rule of law, hell even healthcare, pension systems, all these kinds of of, of uh, developments, and then maybe when those are in place, you can have these fair and free elections. And and the, the case of China, of course, I'm no I'm no fan of China, but I just the, the question has to be asked. Maybe the case of China, it comes to mind because many point to China and say, look at China, they've been able to develop all these, all this welfare and all these stable things, and people are freer than they ever ever been in every respect, bar being able to form parties and compete in elections. So. You get my points. Sure, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I hear this a lot. Um, I guess we're, we're running out of time, so this will probably be my last answer, I guess. And this maybe this is a, a kind of good note on which to end. I, I do hear this a lot, and, and you know, I hear this from people in Africa, people outside of Africa. A lot of times, urban elites in Africa will say something along these lines to me. I think there's a few things to say. I mean, one, you know, we see high levels of support for democracy and electoral politics in rural Africa, you know, in poor parts of rural Africa. And actually there isn't a straightforward relationship between wealth and support for democracy, as you might think. And a lot of recent research conducted, including some of my own in, in our recent book, Moral Economy of Elections in Africa has demonstrated this, that, that actually, you know, it's not the case that rich, wealthy, elite urbanites support democracy and poor rural dwellers don't. Um, the penetration of democracy and democratic ideals is fairly deep. And I think most people fundamentally want to have a say in decisions that affect their lives. And I think that's a, something that's profoundly felt in rural areas. Even if we go back to the 70s, you know, Joel Barkin was showing that, you know, in a lot of African rural areas, more people knew their names of their MPs than in the UK, Sweden, Italy or America. That's partly because, you know, political leaders in Africa perhaps had more impact on their communities than leaders in those other countries. But nonetheless, I think we have to be very careful not to assume low levels of political knowledge or that people don't know, you know, what democracy means and what it involves. I don't really myself see that there's any particular connection between wealth and being able to hold, you know, a good election. I mean, the good elections that are held, as we've talked about, I mean, the elections that we see in Africa today have become incredibly expensive. And the reason they become incredibly expensive is partly because of the digital technology that we talked about earlier. It's, you know, you can spend 100 million, 200 million bringing in that technology, trialing it, buying the equipment. You know, imagine you've got 40,000 polling stations in a lot of countries. So you need to buy a verification kit for 40,000 polling stations, have 40,000 verification kits to start with. So those are very expensive elections. But actually, if you really want to, you can hold a piece of paper and pen election incredibly cheaply, you know, much more cheaply than that. Um, and yes, that is money that could go on education, healthcare, etc. But elections are actually a tiny proportion of the budget of African countries. Um, and there's no reason why they can't actually be provided. Um, and as I say, I don't think it's true that you know, people with low levels of income aren't able to make informed choices about their futures. We've actually seen, you know, in some of the poorest countries in Africa, think about Benin, which is very poor at the point at which it became 
a multi-party democracy. Zambia, which is very poor at the point it made the transition of multi-party democracy, these countries have had transfers of power, democratic transfers of power. Both are now facing a democratic challenge and a period in which you will probably see democratic backsliding, but both have actually made important democratic breakthroughs. So again, I guess I would say that it is a challenge to, to, to build democracy in countries where you know, the state is weaker and where government resources are more limited, but it's not impossible. Uh, we have to be careful not to make those assumptions about you know, communities just because they might have slightly lower levels of education or slightly lower levels of wealth. But I also think there's a, there's a broader point here, which is, is really important to make as we end, which is that one of the things I think we've seen from the last 10, 15 years in Africa is that actually holding elections and building in accountability is important for driving and forcing governments to perform better. In other words, it's not the case that you can get a good economy, a strong civil society, the rule of law, national identity sorted under some sort of benign dictator and then transition to democracy when you've got it. Because what most of those benign dictators do is they become Magafuli, completely crushing your position in civil society. They become Museveni, whose you know, economic sort of successes initially have started to become, you know, sort of critiqued by people within Ugandan society as, you know, people are frustrated that there hasn't been more rapid change. Or Zambia, where President Lungu is actually presiding over massive economic decline as well as political decline. I think you don't get in these systems, and you know, if you think about the 60s, 70s, and 80s, we can see this. We had 30 years of authoritarian regimes in Africa with fairly, you know, in some cases, benign leaders. You know, President Nyeri, President Kaunda are probably about as benign dictators as you would imagine you would get today. And yet yeah. in none of those countries did we really see the development of the conditions for thriving successful democracies. So for me, it's more plausible to think that actually you kind of build these things hand in hand. In in other words, you build a bit of democracy, it creates space, it creates stronger rule of law, it helps to reduce corruption, that creates a more dynamic economy, that creates a bigger middle class and a stronger civil society, that supports a process of further democratization, which in turn leads to better government decisions, which in turn leads to economic growth, which in turn leads to strengthening of civil society and the further expansion of the middle class, and you create a positive cycle in which accountability supports those things that you were talking about, and those things then support democracy back. I think if we shield governments from accountability, and we shield them from their people and we tolerate a kind of return to the one-party state what we'll actually see in most countries is that governments not having that pressure will relax will cease to focus so much on the provision of public services will become more corrupt and more inefficient rather than less and that actually that will put the task not just of democracy back but also of driving development back many years so my kind of argument would be the best model for the future is probably trying to do democracy and development together the idea that you do development first and then democracy after may have worked elsewhere in the world. And it might be that there are regional patterns here. It may be that that was a model that worked particularly well in certain East Asian countries. It may be a model that works particularly well for China over the next 50, 60 years. But it's not a model that's ever really worked in Africa. And therefore, we should try and look for a different model that better reflects Africa's history over the last 50, 60 years, taking into account, as we've said, all of those different variations that we were talking about a moment ago. Excellent answer. So there's no order of events. We do, we do these things uh, in, in conjunction with each other. Wonderful. So Nick Cheesman, where can people find your, your books, talks and, and articles and other work? 
It's very kind of you to ask. I have a website, uh, democracyinafrica.org, um, and people can also follow me on Twitter at Fromage Homme. Fromage Homme, which is uh, cheeseman in French, isn't it? There you go. But it's actually yeah. cheeseman in bad French, which is perfect for an English person who can't actually speak foreign languages very well. So it's it, perfect. It reflects the it reflects the poverty of the British educational system whilst also <laughs> trying to play a joke on my name. Thank you so much, Nick Cheeseman. It's been a pleasure and an education talking with you. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Thank you.